Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm here with my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and I pronounce the word hooer with two syllables. <laughs> <laughs> Only two? You could probably add a third one. You could you could stretch it. He's a hooer. <laughs> there you uh, go. <laughs> that, there's no authenticity. Hooer is, yeah. you know, got some authenticity. Yes, it does. It, it does indeed. There's a lot of authenticity in the movie we're about to talk about. In this season of Awesome Movie Year, we're talking about the films of 1967, and we are at our first feature episode for a notable filmmaking debut, and we're talking about Martin Scorsese and his film, Who's That Knocking at My Door? Now, did he go on to do other things mm-hmm. after this? Or? Mm, not, not so much. Okay. Yeah. No, no. It's, a, it's an unconventional choice for us because he disappeared. No one's yeah. heard of him. It's yeah. weird, you know? Well, at least we'll bring some attention to this long-forgotten filmmaker. Yes. Um, of course, that's not true. But this film is certainly not as well-known as other Scorsese films. Uh, or even as well known as other early Scorsese films, I feel like a lot of people maybe assume that he debuted with uh, Mean Streets or even with Boxcar Bertha, which were his next two films. You really think people think he debuted with Boxcar Bertha? Well, I feel like even that is more well known than this. I think people think Mean Streets is the earliest Scorsese film. And, yeah. and when we were talking about this, I brought up to you like that this is almost like a precursor to Mean Streets. You see so many themes and ideas and RV Keitel. Yes. Uh, which you see in Mean Streets as well. That you do. So, um, but yeah, you're probably, I mean, Mean Streets is his first film that is well known, certainly. But he started here, and I think we can see a lot of what would go on to be Scorsese techniques and themes that did debut here, which is pretty impressive given how young he was. And this film started, parts of it were made as a student film of his when he was at NYU. So he's very young. That was called Bring On the Dancing Girls with Harvey Keitel. And uh, it was later expanded with more content uh, related to the romance storyline with Zena Bethune as The Girl. And it debuted at the Chicago International Film Festival in November 1967. That was when it was titled I Call First. And it was then later expanded a little more with uh, some nudity. Uh, as required by an uh, exploitation distributor, and then released in 1968 as Who's That Knocking at My Door, also re-released in 1970 under the title J.R., which is the name of Harvey Keitel's character, but Who's That Knocking at My Door is the title that kind of was eventually settled on. So a, a bumpy history for this film, release-wise. Yeah, yeah you did pretty well there. We oh, thank it. you. So... Um, the nudity, as you said, was required by the distributor so they could get, you know, play overseas and in different markets. You know, as you said, it's weird that this is like an exploitation film because the nude scenes are like, uh, like, like beautifully shot, right? There's no exploitation, uh, involved in them. Really. It's very artistic. So if you went in thinking like, you're going to see a skin flick, this is not the the right call for you. No, and and even those those scenes that involve nudity are I mean, yes, they have sexy actresses in them, but they're meant to be a representation of sort of the like anguished psyche of the main character. They're not titillating really. Yeah, and like you you mentioned Boxcar Bertha, which was Roger Corman, so it's weird that uh he would go from this to Roger Corman because when you think Roger Corman, it's again 
um, more of the B movie style, uh, a lot of nudity, and that does have nudity. But again, I don't think you would think that as like a typical Roger Corman flick either. Yeah, I've actually never seen Boxcar Bertha. Have you? Uh, I think I've never seen it in full, but um, I should. I've Did you seen... just watch the nudity? Yeah, that's it. I just fast forward <laughs> right to it. I look online. What uh, Mr. Skin? What point? What point is Barbara Hershey nude? Yeah, uh, because that's what, I, you know, when you when you want to look for nudity, you uh, look for early Martin Scorsese. Yeah, that's what you got to do. There's no other way to find nudity in movies yeah. or on the internet for that matter. Absolutely. So, <laughs> um, no, I've seen I've seen parts of it because I mean I've seen so many Scorsese films. I just don't think I've ever seen it in full. But then again, I didn't even remember that I had seen this movie until I was watching it again, and I had oh, wow. seen this movie before. So you know, there you go. All right. Um, and Josh, I wanted to reference one other thing. You said that it was once called "I Call First. Which, if you've watched this movie, is a very uh, off-putting title because yes. there's uh, a scene where all the all the guys, all these knock-around guys, you know, they're basically going to take turns uh, having sex with the woman that they brought over, and Jr. goes, "I call first. So that's a very uh, strange title. So I think uh, maybe they went a better way with it. Yeah, maybe it's named after the song that plays at the end uh, by The um, Genies. There you 1959, go. I think. Yeah, really, it's hard enough to find box office data pre 1980s, but especially for a movie like this. So I didn't find any info on that. Allegedly, the budget for this was 75,000, which is very small. I'm sure it didn't set the box office on fire, even with that nudity, but I bet it made more than $75,000. Well, and I don't think it cost 75 in one chunk, because as you said, it started as a short, and then they would film here and there and Harvey Keitel would be like, why am I wasting my time with this? And you know, and then hey, it's a movie and it launched uh, two careers because this was Keitel's first movie as well. Yeah, exactly. And actually three careers, because I'm sure we're going to talk about Thelma Schoonmaker, the legendary editor who has worked with Scorsese uh, throughout his entire career. I think this was her first movie that she edited too. And it's interesting reading reviews of this where, of course, none of these people know what Scorsese would go on to do and talking about the promise here. But um, even though the film itself is rough in part because of that, production history that we talked about that it's sort of put together in, in fits and starts or whatever. Um, you can see so much promise and so much of what would go on to define these careers uh, of these filmmakers. And uh, Roger Ebert was an early champion of this film. Of course, he's a Chicago based critic. So he did see it at that world premiere. Uh, and then when it was eventually released commercially as who's that knocking at my door, he said, I first saw it in November 1967 at the Chicago Film Festival when it was titled I Call First. I found it a marvelous evocation of American city life, announcing the arrival of an important new director. To be sure, Scorsese was occasionally too obvious, and the film has serious structural flaws, but nobody who loves movies believes a perfect one will ever be made. What we hope for instead are small gains on the fronts of hope, love, comedy, and tragedy. It is possible that with more experience and maturity, Scorsese will direct more polished, finished films. But this work, completed when he was 25, contains a frankness he may have diluted by then. Yes, it is possible he'll direct more. Right. I mean, again, it's always amusing to see. And no, got, nobody knew at the time. And I found this quote from the original review from the um, you know, first time you saw it at the festival. I have no reservations in describing it as a great moment in American movies. So he was a fan. I think the important thing there is it is a real honest look at that New York City life and the neighborhood life that he grew up in. And when I'm watching 
Harvey Keitel, I uh, there's so many times in this movie where he's talking about the searchers or different westerns, and I'm like, he's playing Martin Scorsese, other than like that kind of tough guy rogue because Scorsese grew up with asthma, and that's one of the reasons he became so entrenched in film was that he couldn't go out and do all these things so he just watched tons of movies yeah i mean you can tell that this is personal and that even even the the sort of unsavory aspects of Keitel's character maybe scorsese kind of working out his own feelings even if he didn't act that way specifically you kind of wonder if he's examining the values of the place that he came from that he grew up with you see that in so many scorsese movies i mean streets we've already mentioned but I mean, even Last Temptation of Christ, you know, which is all about kind of him figuring out his own referendum on Christianity and Catholicism, really, which is kind of a theme throughout his career. Yeah, I mean, and Ebert says, you know, he may not have the same frankness. And certainly there are a lot of Scorsese movies that are, are very polished and that are more mainstream entertainment. But I think he actually does maintain a lot of that frankness and a lot of that self-criticism and, and self-reflection, even in movies all the way up to his more recent films. There's an honesty, and he and I, we might have talked about this before when we did New York, New York, which, uh, you know, we neither of us really like. Yeah, okay. certainly not. The, it's an interesting that, that this is our second Scorsese episode, the two movies that we've covered, New York, New York, and Who's That Knocking at My Door? Yeah. Not the most obvious ones. Right, but he's underrated in his ability to write things that are funny. And not joke funny, but just natural kind of neighborhood dialogue funny, I think. Yeah, there's there's an authenticity here that that is amusing. Um, I do love the the scene with uh, Sally Gaga, the, the greatest, uh, the greatest uh, New York Italian guy name ever. Um, when he's he's with his girlfriend or not his girlfriend, probably just some woman he's hooking up with. And they're making out and he steals the money out of her purse. And then she's like, what, what happened to my money? Oh, I don't know. And then he generously offers her cab fare to get home, which of course is her own money. Yeah. And I appreciate, Josh, that you went all in and pronounced Gaga. Yes. The right way. <laughs> it's not like Lady Gaga. No, it's, it's, it's Sally Gaga. Gaga. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, the explanation of how he got the name Sally Gaga, because he's always talking but never making sense like a baby, is very... Uh, Italian uh, nickname, you know, Northeast style, New York, New Jersey. So yes. Gaga. Thank you for that. <laughs> um, so not all critics were uh, all in on it in the same way as Ebert was more mixed. Vincent Canby in the New York Times said Scorsese, who is 25 years old and won a number of festival prizes for shorts made while he was a student at New York University, is obviously a competent young filmmaker. Working on what must have been a minuscule budget, he has composed a fluid, technically proficient movie, more intense and sincere than most commercial releases. It is apparent that the Italian-American milieu is a first-hand experience, but the vision Scorsese has made from it is detailed in the kind of self-limiting drama and dialogue that Patty Chayefsky abandoned some time ago, and in images that look very much like film school poetry. There are lots of panning shots across gray, squalid cityscapes and around interiors made easily grotesque with objects of religious adoration. I must say that I like Scorsese's enthusiasm, even while wincing at some of the results. And I mean, he's a little harsh there, but on the other hand, I feel like that's a fair assessment of a first film where he's kind of working out 
his techniques and his themes and whatever that will be more fully realized later. Okay, but those shots, don't they have meaning to them, right? The idea of like putting this hard scrabble like New York City scape against this religious iconography is symbolic of all these guys and what their emotional kind of outlook is on life, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe you could argue that it's a little too obvious that there's the meaning is is sort of clumsy at times. I mean, especially some of those scenes or what is it? The scene of, uh, of Jr. like kissing the, the Christ, uh, statue and then his lip bleeds. It's like, Oh, is, is, is religion injuring him in some way in this scene? You yeah. know, there's a little, is a little clumsy, but that's okay. Right. Uh, I, the word fluid came up. I don't think this is a very fluid. It's film. a very choppy film yeah, in part, probably because of that production history. That's exactly what I was going to say. It started as a short and kind of moved on to this feature. And then we added a love story and then this, you know, the nude scene that we need in there. And it's like, it's in a way it's episodic. Uh, the way it flows together is more fluid, but it's, it's not really story-wise cohesive. Yeah. It barely even has a story. Yeah. I keep thinking, you know, when you think of Scorsese's influences, right, you go back to some great American filmmakers, but this felt very French new wave and it's, uh, influence to me yeah absolutely um more i mean you like you said they talk about the searchers they talk about john wayne a lot the characters talk about rio bravo and all that stuff but this feels very french new wave or uh italian like a fellini or antonioni film i mean stuff that scorsese certainly would have been very familiar with and and certainly influenced by but less so than that classical american cinema right as we have already mentioned and as a well-known fact he is a film historian so he is well-versed in all this stuff. Right, right. And as is the, the character who, again, is sort of a representation of Scorsese in some ways, the character of J.R. Yeah. So Variety, in their uh, unbylined staff review, was very dismissive. They said, The tale, apparently, is the inner struggle of a young Italian-American, J.R., torn between a Roman Catholic upbringing and the temptations of modern life. Unfortunately, he's portrayed as a crude, carousing lout who seemingly never works, but devotes most of his time to drinking and drifting or spending time with a, quote, good girl until he finds that she's not the virgin he imagined. Zena Bethune as the girl is believable, but Harvey Keitel as the antihero is alternatively boorish or bewildered. And I think they really missed the point of this movie and of that character. Boorish and bewildered is like literally how you might tell him to play the part. Right, right. <laughs> I think they missed the point too, but that's not um, unfamiliar ground for Scorsese throughout his career. As we've talked about, like I love the King of Comedy and that movie got like no love until 20, 30 years after it was released. So uh, it just kind of shows you he's kind of ahead of his time, maybe not with this film, but I can see that's again, a recurring theme that we see with him and critics. Yeah, I mean, less so maybe as he's become this like titan of cinema that has this huge reputation um, that critics are almost it's the opposite now. And they're willing to give him the benefit of the doubt on anything just because he's Scorsese. Yeah. But yeah, earlier in his career and certainly here at the very, very beginning, um, he doesn't have that sort of stature. But but I do think that it's not hard to see that the point of this movie is that Jr. is misguided and has been misled by religion and by his upbringing and that the way he's portrayed as boorish and bewildered uh, or as a lout or whatever is, is on purpose and is not meant to be celebrating that behavior. I think religion also, you know, 
uh, having grown up back east and um, in a very mixed neighborhood, there's a real machismo to it. And there's a machismo to Italian New York culture, you know, and we see that throughout the character. So he's got a lot of issues that other people might not ever have to think they would have to work out, especially in today's world, right? Like, but in the 60s, I don't think this was a dishonest portrayal of what that character might react like. Right. I think that's the point. It's honest. It may not, he may not be an admirable guy at all times, but it's, it's a real reflection of what those people are like. So, and it would be kind of boring if it was, if he was just like understanding about everything, right. That would be, you want him to go on that journey. Right. Right. I mean, I think what, what maybe would be what some people would hope for is that he gets there eventually, whereas he doesn't, I mean, spoiler alert, he doesn't grow as much as we might hope for him to by the end of the movie. I think you're right. But why that is okay is because of Xena Bethune, her character, the strength that she shows and the conviction that she shows in her beliefs by not being willing to put up with that. Right. I'm, I, I agree. And I don't think the movie is endorsing that. I think in a way the movie is, is sort of a tragedy that he can't get past that and he loses out on the chance to have a sort of better more satisfying life because he just slides back into the values of, of his neighborhood. Right. So that's true. But I could see viewers hoping for sort of more redemption for sure, that character. Sure. I would, I would want that. You know, I don't think Harvey Keitel is uh, bewildered, bemoaned in a, in a way that you don't want to root for. Him. Right. I mean, and it's a good performance from Harvey Keitel, yes. you know, that, that makes you want to root for this guy, even if he's kind of a, a, a dick a lot of the time. Uh, and more so than his buddies who at least he has the sort of self-reflection to be tortured about this. And you don't get the impression that Sally Gaga would be worried about this kind of stuff. You know, he's a baby, not just in the way he speaks, but maybe in his mindset. As ah, well. so insightful. Um, so you said you saw this before, even though you'd forgotten. Is it was this a, a film school viewing or when was that? Uh, yeah, it was. I, I had mentioned on another show I had taken a major figures class in college on Scorsese and Spielberg. And we definitely watched this one. And uh, it just he's such a major figure that maybe, you know, this kind of gets slotted under so many other films that until I watched it again. I was like, oh, yeah, I have seen this movie before. So, so do, you, do you remember any class insights uh, on this film? Well, you mentioned a, a lot of them, you know, like kind of like how he had to get it distributed. And um, I mean, the fact that he had kind of Haig Manugan, who was like his mentor professor at NYU, like his support as a producer was a big deal. And I think, you know, the themes of Catholicism, um, and this is this is interesting because it's 1967 and it's kind of the schism year from the old to the new. Right. Yeah. And I think you see that with a character like this character probably would have been portrayed differently five years earlier. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that I mean, I think that's a theme that we'll probably keep talking about this season is the way that this is such a transitional year for cinema. And you mentioned that that professor uh, Manugian. Yeah, Haig Manugian. And uh, I didn't I didn't quote this part, but uh, early in the Variety review, they essentially downplay Scorsese and credit him as like the over like the architect of this film. I mean, he was, you know, one of those big mentors that definitely uh, influenced a lot of young filmmakers. But, you know, that's just silly variety. 
Yeah, it, it is. And, and, and as, as we talked about in our last episode on the graduate variety is sort of the like bastion of the establishment, uh, and defending that over something new. Had you seen this before? I had not. I mean, I'm not the Scorsese devotee that you are. Uh, I've seen a lot of Scorsese movies, but mostly the major films, um, you know, and, and New York, New York, but because we talked about <laughs> it here, um, I've never seen Boxcar Bertha. So yeah. And I'm kind of, my feeling on Scorsese is often I admire him. I appreciate his importance as a filmmaker. I don't always enjoy watching the films. And I certainly enjoyed this more than New York, New York. But I think I, again, I felt more like, oh, I can sort of uh, appreciate how this is influential in the development of his style more than really get lost in the story or the characters. Well, I think that's fair in this movie because it's, um, I mean, to me, the best part of watching this is like, if you watch Mean Streets right after this, and then you kind of put that puzzle together, puzzle pieces. Oh, mm. oh, oh, Dave, had you seen this before? I hadn't. And and I, I just wanted to say, like, as producer of Awesome Movie Year, I think this is such an exciting episode to do, because uh, if you look at a lot of the other first features that we've done, it's like, you know, Clerks and Eraserhead, 16 Candles. I mean, these are these filmmakers, some of their biggest movies, you know, and this one I didn't even know existed. And so it's, it's an awesome episode, I think. Well, thank you, Dave. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, thanks, Dave. <laughs> but, well, but that's true is that we have talked about all these first features where these filmmakers made big hits with their first features and it took Scorsese a while to get to that point. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it did. I guess so. I mean, big hit. I, Taxi Driver, 75, probably. Yeah, or, or I mean, or again, even if you talk about Mean Streets, at least a movie that became very well known. Right. You wonder, though, if that's also a product of the year, right? 67. Uh, I wonder, you know, we talked about Mike Nichols, right? And his first movie finished was Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? But the real breakout was The Graduate, right? So I wonder if there had been any major, major first-time filmmakers... Uh, I'm sure there are. This is probably yeah, I, a dumb I, question. I don't so. remember who else we talked about. I mean, Scorsese is Scorsese, so it's... No, no, like I mean was, like big hits from first-time directors. Oh, big hits in yeah. the 60s. Oh, is it tougher to make a big hit as a first-time filmmaker yeah, at this right. time? Yeah, that may be true. I mean, I think it just depends on sort of where your career comes from. You know, Scorsese, this movie is an independent film, you know, as a student film at, at the start, versus someone who might have come, like Mike Nichols, who came out of theater and so was able to make his debut with a major studio film starring Elizabeth Taylor. You know, it's a, it's a whole different sort of approach. You also got to remember, like we're talking about big stars, big stars were created from Scorsese movies, right? True. True. Nero, I mean, is electric in mean streets. Keitel, this is his first movie, right? So throughout the years, I mean, you know, a lot of these stars become stars because of the performance they've put on with Scorsese. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as we've said, Keitel was, hadn't really done anything. I mean, he yeah, answered an ad feature. to appear in a student film and that's how he ended up in this movie. Right. Um, and went on to an amazing career. So uh, any other background you want to mention here? I do want to mention one other thing, Josh. First is uh, maybe not the first appearance, but probably the first feature appearance of Catherine Scorsese. Yes. Martin Scorsese's mom, who we see again and again in his films and is very memorable as Joe Pesci's mom in Goodfellas. And I think right before this, he did the documentary Italian American, which focused on the mom and the family. So it was nice to see Catherine Scorsese in such an early performance there, making uh, what I think was Easter pie. 
Oh yeah, I don't, I don't know. But she's the, I mean, she's the first thing we see in this movie. Before we see Harvey Keitel, we see Catherine Scorsese making that Italian pasta pie thingy. Type thing. yeah. yeah, it's a thingy. That's my, <laughs> that's my official yeah. designation I'll, for I'll it. Keep, I'll do the food writing. All right. Things. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. So we'll come back in a minute then and talk about our general thoughts on who's that knocking at my door. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year in this episode of our season on the films of 1967. We are talking about the debut feature from Martin Scorsese, Who's That Knocking at My Door? And as we've been saying, formative in so many ways for Scorsese's later work. Anything in particular that stands out to you the most here, Jason? Yeah, I think the way he moves the camera, you can see, and again, as Ebert said, he will become more polished, but very early on, there's a pan throughout the neighborhood and a pan back, and you see kind of the way he uses urban environments. And that sequence that he had to film that required nudity is really like, it feels like it would be out of, um, you know, like some type of 90s model Victoria's Secret advertisement or something like that. It's really, really nicely made. Yeah, it is. I mean, and I think you can argue that that if he was forced to kind of put that in and maybe wasn't enthused about it, he still put all of his artistic vision and effort into creating that sequence. Right. Um, I also liked I and I always like just the kind of guy, the dialogue be, between the guys that are in some ways very basic, like, oh, I don't want to go uptown. Let's go downtown. Like, I'll buy the drinks. I don't need you to buy me drinks. I got drinks right here. You know, and it just <laughs> this, these uh, kind of roundabout arguments that at one point, uh, what's the character's name who makes him get out of the car? Joey. John, Joey. Joey. Yeah. Joey makes JR get out of the car, and then he just loops right back around. Get back in, you know. <laughs> so, um, so those were kind of some of the things. Um, I also found it interesting, Zena Bethune, we never really see again in film after this. Or? Right, right. Um, she was a child actor before this in a lot of TV stuff. Yeah. Um, and of course, this is a movie that has no budget and it's not like Harvey Keitel was a star that they got. As we were saying earlier, he became a star because of this. So it's Scorsese certainly didn't have resources to get, you know, actors who had real careers necessarily. Yeah. Well, Josh, I want to ask you, but one thing I have to mention in like the up top of immediate impressions is and we kind of talked about it with the graduate too. And Scorsese was one of the kind of forerunners of this using pop music as a soundtrack. And he uses really great fifties and sixties, Mitch Ryder and the Detroit wheels, you know, stuff like that. And then like we mentioned the genies and he's got this really, really apt way of putting this really nice pop music, upbeat pop music against uh, someone getting beaten. That's yes. always a thing. So. Yeah. That is a Scorsese thing, yeah. but no, I, I, that was one thing that I was absolutely going to mention. Cause to me, the use of that music in this movie was, more striking than in The Graduate. And The Graduate is known as a movie that kind of pioneered that and not so much this movie. And maybe it's just because The Graduate was a massive hit that lots and lots of people saw and this movie was not until many, many years later. Um, and even then people don't really see it much. But to me, The Graduate is almost conservative in its use of that because it's the one artist. It's some songs that they play over and over. It's like he's sort of hesitantly dipping his toe into this technique of what if we use pop music to soundtrack the movie, whereas Scorsese throws in all these songs, as you're just naming, and, and 
I would imagine that the budget of this movie, the small budget, that quite a lot of it probably went to licensing, even though they're not super famous songs. They're all existing, pre-existing songs. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think Scorsese does get the credit. Maybe not as like, maybe he gets the credit instead of the film, right? Right. But he is known as one of the first ever to do this. Um, when you talk about like that Mitch Ryder song, which is uh, Jenny, take a ride or Jenny, 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 won't you come home with me? I know because Springsteen always does of it course. as the Detroit medley yeah. in his song. But there's so many different aspects of that song. There is a very medley type feel to it. So I did notice he did cut it up and use it multiple times. Okay. And then Junior Walker and the All-Star Shotgun, that was very memorable. And it wasn't just the pop music that was really well uh, done here. In the scene where the girl, uh, no name. Yeah, we can talk about that. Yeah, where she's recounting the incident of her rape. He does a very good job of like playing the music out of time and on top of each other and making it very uncomfortable to add to the level of horror of the situation. Yeah, it's it's an effective use in that. And, and as you're saying, in those scenes of contrast where we have this upbeat, R&B song while people are someone's getting beat down or whatever terrible things right, are happening. Right, which you see in Mean Streets again. Yeah, and I think we've seen you know in a lot of Scorsese crime movies. Right, the uh, the longest day sequence in Goodfellas against Layla's like one of the all time great sequences. I think. Right. So yeah, the 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 fact that the girl doesn't have a name is a little unfortunate. And I mean, when this movie began. And the credits come up first and you see Xena Bethune as the girl. I, I thought, oh, this is going to be a movie that really kind of mistreats a female character or diminishes her. And, and in a way, it's, it's, I mean, it's not that necessarily. She's actually a pretty strong character, as you are saying earlier. And she doesn't just let J.R. walk all over her. And she's the one who's more enlightened than he is by the end. So it's a shame, I think, that she's designated that way because it gives the audience the impression that it's JR's story and she's just not that important. I was I was wondering if that was the reason though is it because we meet her and what we learn about her is always through JR, right? We never really see her on her own. So, you know, again does this go back to that machismo of like, yeah, I met this girl and you know, she's this girl and I don't know what to do with this girl, right? As opposed to kind of making her an individual. Right. And I think that is the character's perspective about her. But the movie, I mean, as we're kind of defending it from these critics at the time, the movie's perspective is is broader than that. The movie's perspective is more sympathetic to her and critical of Jr. And you'd think that they could just slap a name, even if we never hear the character say it, just give her a name. I think you're right. I mean, you know, and the way he uses the camera, there's that one time where we're on her face and he like kind of I think it's a zoom, not a push, but like he goes right into like her mole. Right. And you're like, man, he is showing her as an individual, right? Like that's a close up she's getting because that's a distinct bodily feature that she has, not that everyone has. And I really think she did get her uh, fair say in that scene. And we wanted her to where it's just crazy to think about now, but uh, she was raped. She tells Jr. about it. He can't handle it. Uh, you want Jr. to come around and understand that a woman being raped is not a woman's fault, right? Right. And instead, he comes around and says, "I forgive you for what happened." And at that point, you know, if he had written a weak woman, that character would have been like, "Well, 
whatever, we're just going to move on. But she really gives it to him back. Like, look, you are not understanding anything as she should. Right. right. And she says, like, get out of here. I can't do this with you. And maybe in the 60s, I wonder how progressive of a stance that was to take at the time. Yeah, I think it was. And I think that's why these critics are maybe being too harsh, is that the movie knows that J.R. is wrong. And it's very clear. And I think even as much as as we as an audience want J.R. to come around, you know, we see him in that scene where he could at the end of the movie where he comes to her apartment and he realizes that he threw away a good thing or whatever. He's just come from this party where he calls first, where, you know, these his macho buddies are essentially planning to gang rape these women. And luckily the women leave. But, you know, he realizes that at least is a situation that he doesn't want to be in. And so we're kind of hoping, okay, he gets it now. And, And I think it's bold to show that, like, no, he doesn't quite get it yet. Like, maybe he will eventually. He'll look back 20 years later and realize he was wrong. But now he doesn't get it because he's still a product of this background that he has and he can't quite escape it. And we've talked about this in other movies, how rape is just taken so lightly. And at least in this film, he gives it the weight it deserves from the female perspective, if not from the male perspective. Right. I mean, those flashes of her being raped are traumatic to watch. I mean, he really gives you as an audience member, as a viewer, the sense of how horrific that is. Yeah. And also, I think with the character, how she explains it to him, how she felt like she couldn't tell anyone for a long time and she had to come to terms with what happened to her. And I think that a lot of people who go through trauma like that um, do have experiences like that. And that's a sad thing, too, is that she is opening up. She's decided he's the one that she can tell. She trusts him. She loves him. She's willing to be vulnerable like this. And then the way that he reacts is the worst possible way. It's the exact opposite of what she hopes for by opening up to him like that. You are right. You're <laughs> right there. Um, there's not really a good way to transition from that. Let's talk about another aspect yeah, of the movie. I wanted to talk about the sequence where the guys are all messing around with the gun. And we are playing that against images of the Westerns. And I thought that was really unique, kind of how he was comparing Westerns to like this real New York gangster culture, like how the maybe these kind of New York gangsters look at themselves as, you know, Westerns, whether they're anti-heroes or kind of outlaws or they kind of live by their own code. I thought that was pretty interesting and kind of really showed a real connection between Scorsese's love of film history and the way that he makes films. Yeah. And I think it also shows that these guys are just play acting in a lot of ways. They think of themselves as these macho heroes, but they're not actually doing anything heroic. No. In fact, I actually, there's this whole sequence where they go to like a very uh, rural town in New York state. Copake. Copake. You ever been to Copake? I can't do the (laughs) accent. No. And I've never been, and I've been all over New York. Yeah. Uh, Dave, have you? No. uh -uh. Yeah. I really thought, so they're climbing the mountain with this guy. And I really thought that they were going to kill Joey on top of the mountain. That seems, you know, I got flashes of the Sopranos where they take Adriana to the Pine Barren. Spoiler alert, you know? Yeah. Um, But, uh, but yeah, nothing really happens in that regard. No. And I was kind of wondering, I mean, maybe I'm conditioned because of Scorsese's famous crime movies, but I just assumed like, oh, these are criminals. And 
other than that scene where they play with the gun and there's a scene early on where they're doing some kind of illegal gambling and you get the impression that Joey is maybe, I don't know, a loan shark of some kind, but it's all very vague. I don't think they're criminals. I, I got that they were criminals because like you said, like we see uh, JR get beaten up at the beginning, right? Yeah. Um, we see Sally Gaga steal the money from the woman, right? Well, right. But I mean, to me, yeah. that was just him being a mook or whatever. Yeah. yeah. A mook using a term made famous in Mean Streets. Oh, okay. Yeah. What do you mean? You can't call him a mook. I just did, you know? I'm not. But then... So, I mean, there are other elements, like you said, they're playing around with the gun. Right. But I think ultimately the scene with the gun, especially with the contrast with the Westerns, is to show that they don't know that they they're they're just playing. Right. Right. They don't really know how to do anything. Maybe. I mean, maybe, like I said, they're more knock around guys. They're not high up. But I mean, Jr. when uh, the girl asks him what he does, he says he's in between jobs. Right. He's always hanging out and he's always seems to have money. So. Yeah, you do got to wonder about that. But, you know, he lives with his mom and uh, I, I, I was I wasn't sure if he was meant to be a criminal or just a loser. Or just a guy in his 20s who hasn't figured it out yet. Right, right. But as opposed to the girl who has a nice apartment and is presumably around the same age, but is More studying mature. and right. And it has a direction that she's planning for her life. How about uh, how about. Um... One other thing I want to go back to that we were talking about in the reaction to when the girl tells Jr. about um, what happened to her. I thought it was really effective the way Scorsese used jump cuts. And I'm guessing there was a lot of improvisation with Harvey Keitel and just kind of like, why don't you try it this way? Why don't you try it this way? And the way he's jump cutting and Jr. is just trying to throw out anything in his mind to make it make sense. And it's not making sense to him. And it was a really effective way to show uh, just how tense and awkward that whole moment was for both of them. I thought. Yeah, there's good use. I mean, even though overall this film is a bit choppy in its construction, there's good use of editing in a lot of places, especially with the jump cuts. And there's a lot of use of freeze frames. And a lot of that is, I think, from that French New Wave influence. But he also uses long takes really well. The scene where Jr. and the girl first meet on the Staten Island ferry, and he's kind of slowly trying to pick her up by talking about the magazine she's reading. And that's when they start talking about John Wayne and the searchers. And that's all, or the bulk of it is just one take and is done really well. Editing, we talked about Thelma Schoonmaker. And I think also it's kind of a pleasure to watch this, knowing just what a master she became as an editor. Three Oscars, eight nominations. She holds the record for. She's tied for both the most wins and the, the most nominations. So as an editor. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty great. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, and, and you also have to remember, as we keep saying that this is cobbled together from various shoots with different sort of plans in mind. And it's still it's choppy, but it feels like a, a feature with a, you know, coherent vision. Let's get Dave Gaga on this. So. <laughs> yeah. What do you think, Dave? I liked it a lot. Um, it, it reminded me a little bit of Saturday Night Fever of just the guys all hanging out and you're kind of like getting a, a look into a specific time of New York's, you know, culture. And uh, yeah, I, I thought it was really good and uh, interesting uh, early Scorsese, like you guys have been talking about, you see it in his future movies. And I love Scorsese and Josh, as he said, he appreciates him more than likes him. What do you feel about him? I, I come in right in the middle of you two. I mean, I really like a lot of his films, but I don't, I don't know as many of them. There's a lot of blind spots in his filmography for me. Have you seen Mean Streets? A uh, long time ago. That's one of those when I was a kid movies. 
right. right. <laughs> so, the you were six years old. Yeah. yeah. So. I think Jason, when the only time I've seen Mean Streets is when we watched it on our old uh, film club with a uh, shout out to Tony Macklin. There you go. Legendary film critic who we used to get together with and watch movies and learn about. Well, since we're shouting out teachers, I guess I have to shout out Francisco Menendez, who taught that Scorsese and uh, Spielberg class. And and honestly, I'd like to go sit in on any of his major figures classes. I might do that. Uh, this comes out probably close to the summer. I might do this. Uh, we might do that this summer. <laughs> See if they'll uh, play this episode in the class, maybe. Right. Um, I'll just sit and watch. Yeah, no, that's fair. We don't want to. We don't want to subject UNLV students to awesome movie year for a whole <laughs> class period. That's a little much. Yikes. Uh, and any other uh, aspects of this that stand out that you want to uh, highlight, Jason? Uh, I feel like we kind of covered it, Josh. I think we, you know, kind of mentioned how important his culture is to him, how important his religion is to him, how you're seeing aspects of him on screen, and how this is really a forerunner of where he's going as a filmmaker. Yeah, I mean, the religious iconography, we we kind of mentioned a little bit, but that's clearly important stuff, and especially in that finale, which is the one part that, I mean, to me was maybe a little overwrought uh, after. JR leaves the girl and he realizes they're not going to be together and he's sort of anguished about it. And, and then the, again, the scene of him kissing the Jesus statue or whatever, and that kind of stuff was a little like, okay. Can you name another movie where we thought the ending was a little uh, too on the nose and overwrought from Scorsese? Was it New York, New York? No. No, Dave? I don't know. The Irishman, maybe? Uh, the Departed at the end. Oh, with the rat? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, maybe he is relying a little on, uh, you know, symbolism. Spelling it out. Yeah, symbolism that spells it out. So that's, in a way, another precursor of later Scorsese films. There you go. But overall, I, I did find this a, an interesting film to watch. And, and like many Scorsese movies, appreciated, maybe didn't love watching it. So, All right. Fair enough. Can I mention one quick moment? Just I, I wanted to just mention it. Yeah. Uh, as someone who's grown up around vinyl my whole life, there's a moment in the end when he's in the girl's uh, apartment and he's nervously trying to uh, go. He just looked through her record collection. He's nervously trying to like push them back up and they keep sliding back down. That is so realistic. And I've never <laughs> seen that captured in a movie before. <laughs> I mean, I think it's also symbolic of him being out of place, yes. you know, not not knowing how to act in this nice apartment. Yeah. I mean, there was definitely a moment where he was going through R&B and it seemed like he slowed down when he got to Sinatra, something that might be a little more familiar to him. <laughs> right, right. And he doesn't know who, who is it? Or no, she doesn't know. He, he seems to actually be familiar with, doesn't he mention somebody, is it Sister Sledge? or Percy Sledge. Percy, Percy Sledge, Sledge. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. so maybe he is more, you know, and she doesn't know who that is. So Do you know who that is? Uh, I mean, I know the name. I don't think I could name a song though. Dave? No, I've seen the records at the store. But yeah. <laughs> Uh, Percy Sledge, I feel like, did he do redo when when a man loves a woman? Uh, possibly. That sounds kind of familiar. But but I mean, I think the point is just along with the movie references that he is actually culturally relatively sophisticated. Right. He's talking about Italian magazines and film. You know, uh, he obviously knows a lot about Western films. So. Right. He's more sophisticated on that front than he is sort of emotionally sophisticated. Sure. He sure did do When a Man Loves a Woman. That's He's why you him. want this guy on nice your trivia Good job. Team, right? You and JR. Yeah. I don't think he redid it. He just did. When right. He was the first actual yeah. recording when of it. Didn't write it. but you know. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Michael Bolton. <laughs> oh, man. Michael Bolton. <laughs> so uh, should we rate this out of uh, five gagas? <laughs> sure. Sure. It gets a, a three gagas from me. 
And uh, gaga, gaga, gaga. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm also going to give it three out of five. Like I said, I think I appreciated it more than I was immersed in it, but it's an interesting film and, and worth rediscovery, I think, maybe for people who don't know this, but have seen a lot of other Scorsese movies. So, Dave? I'm going with three and a half gagas. All I, right. I liked it a lot. Yeah. So you're going gaga, 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 ga. Ga. Yeah, there you go. That's right. Now that we've done that enough, (laughs) we'll come back in a moment and talk about the legacy of Who's That Knocking at My Door. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1967, we've been talking about the debut feature from Martin Scorsese, Who's That Knocking at My Door? And of course, the legacy, as we've been talking throughout, is the amazing career of Martin Scorsese. And I mean, we could just name a bunch of great Scorsese movies. And we've done, we've named some of them. And we also, I think, have to look at how he collaborates with people over and over again and the uh, really fruitful collaborations he has throughout his career. Yeah. And that some of those started here. We mentioned Thelma Schoonmaker, who I believe, has she edited every single Scorsese movie? I think she has. And I looked her up and she's edited a few other things, but I really think, you know, it's Scorsese all like she's almost like his full time editor there. Right. Right. And it's amazing to have that kind of collaboration to start this early. I remember when we talked about Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and that was Spielberg's first film working, I think, with Michael Kahn, Mm. is it, who was his editor then on every movie. But he still had, you know, he hadn't started with that. You know, Spielberg had made other movies before then. And Schoonmaker was another one who just answered an ad. Oh, I'll edit this. Right, right. She's one for Raging Bull, The Aviator, and The Departed. Nice. And she's probably going to be nominated for everything she does because she's as good as it gets as an editor. Which is a movie that she did not edit. No, because that's James L. Brooks, Josh. (laughs) Uh, And of course, Harvey Keitel, another, you know, sort of uh, happenstance. And yet they collaborated on a number of films. Mean Streets, of course, you know, right after this. Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Taxi Driver, The Last Temptation of Christ, and then a long period away and and then back with The Irishman. Yeah, it was cool to see him again in The Irishman there. Hey, one cool thing about uh, Harvey Keitel, he was in uh, Scorsese's first film, Tarantino's first film, and Ridley Scott's first film. Pretty good career. And that's not even mentioning all the biggies that he's been in, right? Right. And yet he's still, I think people think of him as more of a character actor than like a major, major star. Um, he was nominated for an Oscar for Bugsy, which I've never seen. Have you seen that? Yeah, I've seen Bugsy, but I don't even as what supporting actor. In there, I assume or? so. Yeah. He's playing Meyer Lansky coming up at, uh, in a movie called Lansky, which we've seen Meyer Lansky movies before, but hopefully this one's a little uh, more well-rounded. So that could be another big piece for him. And was he not nominated for the piano? When he was in that? I think I saw that that was his only Oscar nomination, but I could be wrong about that. Interesting. Well, we know he's got, you know, from our 94 season on Tarantino with uh, uh, Pulp Fiction, not the 94 season, the episode on Pulp Fiction, that when he plays the wolf, he just kind of steals every scene that he's in there. Yeah. And he's always a welcome presence. I mean, he's someone, too, who works in a lot of kind of lower budget films and, you know, maybe not always the best movies, but it's always nice to see him. He takes a lot of risks, too. True. Yeah. Working with some work, like working with Tarantino or working with Abel Ferrara or right. directors Bad who are tenant and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, and I thought it was interesting. I looked this up because, of course, as we're saying here, you know, he started out with Scorsese and they were like the guys who work together. And then he's in Mean Streets, 
with De Niro. And then De Niro kind of overtook him as Scorsese's go-to guy and also became a massive, massive star on a level that Harvey Keitel didn't. And so this is from the New York Times in 1993 when they asked him about that and how he feels about De Niro overshadowing him. And he said, uh, when you really love someone and they have success, that love only allows you to be happy for that person. Nothing else is permitted if the love is true. Would I have liked to have had other roles? Yes. So he's not bitter, but you can see maybe there's a little regret. There. I mean, but he's got a great career and now he's got this thriving collaboration with Wes Anderson that he's in a lot of good stuff with. Like, I think I think any actor would want uh, to be <laughs> if you're that close to being Robert De Niro and you work with Robert De Niro and Scorsese. Why not me? I think anyone would think that. But at the same time, you can't do much better than Harvey Keitel has done. Right. I mean, he has had an amazing career, and it's only less amazing in comparison to De Niro, who is one <laughs> right. of the hugest movie stars yeah. of all time. <laughs> right. So, so not so bad there. Yeah, not at all. Um, we mentioned Zena Bethune, you know, not a notable career, particularly. She was a child actor. She did a lot of TV and continued working in TV after this, but, you know, kind of sporadically did more in theater. She founded a theater and dance company ultimately called Theater Bethune, uh, as well as a dance company that helps disabled children called Infinite Dreams. Yes. So that's nice. She's done great, except uh, had a tragic death. Did you read about that? I did. And it's almost I mean, we don't want to laugh, but it's one of those things that is like so absurd that you have to kind of almost was, laugh about she it. She was helping uh, an opossum, right? Get yeah. A, an injured opossum get across the street and she was hit by a car and killed. How horrible is that? But did the possum survive? Well, the possum might have that shell, but I mean, I, I figure... Uh, Do possums have not shells? Not a shell, but they can kind of curl up and like, oh, yeah. you know, present a hard exterior for themselves. But Josh, I thought, you know, your takeaway from that would be don't help injured animals. I mean, obviously, <laughs> if she hadn't, she would have maybe, you know, still been around. But I mean, obviously, she was someone who had a life of, of giving back to others, you know, within this... Uh, acting and dance community right. too. We focus on film, but like amazing that she founded these two dance companies and were, was able to help so many kids um, with disabilities. Right. That's totally admirable. You mentioned Scorsese's mom. This is her first of many cameos in Scorsese films. Yeah. The best is probably Goodfellas. I think. Yeah. Funny um, stuff. And I was, what did I watch not that long? Is it Casino where she is like chastising the gangsters for swearing too much? I felt like that was in Goodfellas. Oh, okay, maybe it? that was it then. I don't know. They all run together for me a bit. When are you going to bring home a, a girl? What are you talking about? I bring home a girl every night. You know, like <laughs> just really funny stuff. And again, like we said, I think you see like kind of this birth of, it, most of the time it works. We mentioned how it didn't work for us in New York, New York. This kind of like um, targeted improvisation throughout his movies where you get really, really honest um, scene work and, and dialogue from the characters. Yeah, it really doesn't work in New York, New York. And one thing that we've been defending in this movie that also doesn't work in New York, New York, I think is the male character who's kind of a chauvinist and doesn't really learn how to treat women properly. And here, I think you can have a lot more sympathy and understanding for JR versus that De Niro character in uh, New York, New York, who's just annoying as hell. Uh, and we talked about how he was introduced, that character in New York, New York, as opposed to how this character was introduced and immediately is our protagonist. Right, right. So that's uh, something that uh, Scorsese does well here that maybe he didn't always do well. Now this Scorsese character, Josh, does he have any notable projects coming up? Uh, yeah, well, uh, he's making another film. His 
first team up with DiCaprio and De Niro, right? The killers of the flower moon. Right. Based on the book, which is highly acclaimed, huge seller. I'll probably read that before the movie comes out. Uh, Dave, you think you're going to read that? Uh, I don't think so. No, I am not much of a reader. Yeah, so. I know. I just wanted you to put that on record. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Josh, you're going to read that? Uh, no, I do like reading books, but I that's probably not my yeah. uh, preferred. Uh, right, this genre. is it. The two big uh, collaborators, and you know, uh, in the last one in the Irishman, we got some nice stuff with uh, De Niro and Pacino. You know, so uh, this will be fun. Yeah, I hope. I mean, it's another one of these projects. I think Scorsese is, you know, he's getting older, and he's now at this point in his career where he's able to realize these projects whether it's the Irishman or silence, you know, things that he's been trying to do for years and is getting the chance to kind of get all of those done. And this is going right to Apple TV. This next It is. Year. Although I assume there will be some component I, of a theatrical. Release. I think so. Apple's pretty smart about that. Also, um, we could talk about the great collaborations and I mentioned Joe Pesci before you got to mention all the great collaborations they've done together. And I think we saw that again in, uh, in the Irishman. I thought that was some of Joe Pesci's best work. And Joe Pesci coming out of retirement hadn't done a movie in what, 10, 15 right, more right. years. And, yeah. And Raging Bull, amazing, iconic. He won the Oscar for Goodfellas. So is he going to be in the uh, Killers of Flower Moon? I don't think so. And I was wondering if Harvey Keitel was going to be in it, but I, I, not that I know of. I mean, there's been such a big deal made of the fact that it's De Niro and DiCaprio together that I think anyone else in it has been overshadowed, but I don't know that those, either of those guys are going to be in it. And we're, uh, I think it's actually shooting at the time that we're recording this. So that it is, maybe we'll see it around Christmas or next year, next year, I would imagine. All right. Yeah. That's probably got a lot of shooting time and post-production and, uh, editing. Jesse Clemens yeah. is in it. That's cool. He's good. Yeah. yeah. And he yeah. was good in the Irishman. Sure so again, was. you get this kind of troop. And Josh, you're right. It, it, it'll, it'll have to be edited. By Thelma Schoonmaker. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So. She's got to put a lot of effort into it. Quick question for Jason. Um, we've now covered two Scorsese movies here on the show. And you being such a huge Scorsese fan, obviously, who knows what years we're going to do in future awesome movie or seasons. But is there another one of his films you would hope that we end up getting to cover? I think we're going to end up covering one in a future season. I mean, Goodfellas, I think, is like as good a movie as it might be my favorite movie ever. Yeah. Um, Raging Bull, Taxi Driver. I love all these movies. I love King of Comedy. After Hours, I think, is starting to get its due. So his it? answer is all, all of, of the Scorsese. <laughs> no, but I mean, I mean, Kundun. <laughs> I mean, so I, I think, honestly, Josh, yeah. that's a period that I want to revisit is that like mid 90s where he's doing like that and bringing out the dead. And you see some of this stuff, like we're talking about those jump cuts an impressionistic kind of uh, storytelling techniques. And I think he uses that in the 90s a little more. I'd like to see that stuff. But I mean, Dave, the big ones, I mean, you've seen Goodfellas. Sure. You've seen Raging Bull. Sure. Okay, so you've seen Taxi Driver. Absolutely. Well, then I, and then King of Comedy. Is my sure. Answer. And I actually have not seen The King of Comedy or After Hours, so yeah. I should uh, I should check those out. Both good After Hours. We'll see another one of those. Like, There's a lot of periods in Scorsese's career where like, he had a box office dip or maybe a, a substance abuse problem and it's like he had to make a comeback and so he took took on something more mainstream and then it turned out to be very cool very awesome and uh you know that's kind of after hours and everything nice yeah we talked a lot about the uh substance abuse in our new york new york episode right 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 so yeah king of comedy is my answer thank you for the question dave all right i love the aviator too yeah i i actually really like that that might be my favorite scorsese movie um the aviator but uh, which is not a like cool answer, but is 
the one that I really enjoyed the, the most. Ama- that movie's amazing, and that was the movie that kind of convinced me that Leonardo DiCaprio is a huge, like, real star. Yeah. So that is Who's That Knocking at My Door, and that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can check us out on social media. You can. I'm Jason Harris Comedy on Facebook and Instagram. Jay Harris Comedy on Twitter. Uh, my website, go for Jason. Gaga for Jason, maybe. <laughs> uh, we're at Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter and awesomemovieyear.com. And Josh... We just hit, at the time of this recording, a major milestone in our downloads. Thank you, everyone, for listening, supporting, feedback, and uh, we love interacting with you and really appreciate you guys listening. If you feel like giving us a five-star review, we'll take it. If not, don't worry about it. Don't be a good guy. Give us five <laughs> stars. You can find me at joshbellhateseverything.com. Maybe there'll be something new there eventually. At Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook and at Signal Bleed on Twitter. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And what do we have in our next episode, Jason? Whoosh. We are going with uh, <laughs> the box office flop of 1967. And if I told you there was a movie directed by Charlie Chaplin starring Marlon Brando, and Sophia Loren, would you think it would be a flop? No, you'd think that would be amazing. Right, but it wasn't. Uh, it's called The Countess from Hong Kong, and it's our box office flop of 1967. So tune in next time for A Countess from Hong Kong, and thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.